Where did we leave off? We are looking at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We have just a couple more weeks left in it before we hit Advent and move into Christmas season. And where we left off was at the end of chapter 9, after a period of fasting and worship and confession and repentance, the people of God, the saints of God, make a firm covenant. Covenant, for those of you who don't know, is how God relates to us. It's more than a contract, it is a bond. It's God bonding himself to us, and then we respond in union and bonding ourselves to him. They make a firm covenant in writing. In other words, they renew their existing covenant. We've been saying from the beginning that Nehemiah is, if you picture the story, and here's Nehemiah, they come in, Nehemiah comes in to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but it's about so much more than rebuilding. Rebuilding is never just for the sole purpose of rebuilding. I mean, I don't know if you're walking through the building now and taking a look at some of the work that we've been doing as part of 2.0. It's absolutely gorgeous, and it's ap for me, it's fun to see the work as it progresses. But do you want to know what I'm really excited about? And I don't want our task force to take offense at this. The work is great, and I love it, but it's for the purpose of ministry. And it's ministry that I really get passionate about. Rebuilding is not for the purpose of rebuilding. Rebuilding is not for the purpose of having in Nehemiah's day shiny walls, and in our day, a shiny, beautiful building. Rebuilding is for the purpose of reformation and revival, of restoration and renewal. And so chapter 9 ends with the confession and repentance ending in renewal of their covenant relationship with the Lord. And so the people, the leaders, sign this covenant, and then we're going to pick up the reading at chapter 10, verses 28 to 39, and look at the essence and the heart of covenant renewal. You will have to excuse my voice. I've hit allergy season again, and so I feel pretty good and stuff like that. But, and I don't know what it is about Georgia. I have no idea. My phone app says all the allergic things are low, and I'm going, liar. They are not telling the truth because my body and my throat and my voice say I'm allergic to something in the state of Georgia. I have no idea what it is. So I'm up here in a little bit of weakness. Y'all need to be gracious with me, and we will plow through together. And you'll probably hear this many Sundays through the wintertime. And so here goes. Nehemiah chapter 10, beginning at verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, 
we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. According to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Here's the thesis for this particular text. Gospel renewal leads to gospel obedience. If you're taking notes, that's what you should write down. I'll kind of share how it works out to the Levites and the nobles and the townkeepers and all of that. But gospel renewal leads to gospel obedience. This is one of the reasons that one of my heroes in the faith a man I never met, I met his family, but I never met him. He went home to be with the Lord in 1996. You hear me quote him frequently, was a man by the name of Jack Miller. Jack Miller was the man who led, it was called World Harvest Mission back then, now it's Surge Ministries. One of our missionaries, Mark Peach, Mark and Melissa, worked with Surge over in Ireland. Jack Miller was the founder of that, and Jack Miller's man Jack Miller's life was one that illustrated how gospel renewal leads to gospel obedience. He wrote a book called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. Listen to how he describes his story. He says, by April 1970, I had grown sick to death of the church, viewed as religious cushion, and me as chief cushioner. I had been a pastor for more than a decade, and an instructor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia for four years. I'd given it all my best shot. But as a change agent, I had bombed out. I was awash with cynicism about the prospects of the Christian church and went around with continual sorrow in my heart over the state of the churches around me. In a mood of dark despair, 
I resigned both from the seminary faculty and from my pastorate at a church in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. This was the beginning of renewal for Jack. It begins with what we saw back in Nehemiah 9. That's why you have to put this in context. The conviction of sin, the hunger for the Word of God, a sense that we are not okay inside. We may look okay on the outside, but on the inside, we are broken. And the easiest thing to do is to blame everybody else. That's what Jack is confessing. He's saying, I thought it was everybody else's fault. He goes on and he says, this conviction, this confession led to deep repentance. Again, listen to how he put it. He says, I was in depression for several weeks, but gradually during those tearful days, I came to see God. Here's the beginning of renewal. Christian people and myself in a new light. I asked myself, why are you weeping? Other questions followed. Do you see yourself primarily as a victim? Are you blaming others when the basic fault may be yours? Eventually, it occurred to me that the primary failure was mine. I sensed that I had been crippled by my liking to be liked. As a result, I repented of my pride, timidity, and love of peer approval. For Jack, that was when the Holy Spirit began to work renewal in a person's life. It begins, and it will begin for us, and it began for the people of Israel in the Old Testament when they started to have a brutal honesty about themselves. Here's another basic thesis, another basic principle. There will be no renewal and restoration in our lives if we are not willing to be brutally honest about ourselves. If we try to fool ourselves that we're doing better than we are, that we're really loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if there's not a brutal honesty about how fearful, how proud we are, how unbelieving we are, there'll be no renewal. And see, gospel renewal is the only thing that will lead to gospel obedience. What does this look like? Nehemiah 10, following Nehemiah 9, they sign this covenant, we see these two things. We see the obedience of covenant renewal, and we see the essence of covenant renewal. Gospel obedience and gospel renewal. Those are the two things we need. I'm going to Remember I said gospel renewal leads to gospel obedience? I'm going to take them in the opposite order. Let's look at what the obedience looks like and how to get there through gospel renewal. First of all, the obedience of covenant renewal. What does this gospel obedience look like? And it's interesting, all these things, and I wonder, were you really following with me as I read all of this in the text? There are several different areas that are highlighted. The first are the areas of practical holiness, which revolves around relationships. Practical holiness, obedience, will always revolve around relationships. The battleground in life is the battleground of relationships and the battleground of our hearts. Look with me at verse 28. And it says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all of these different people, 
functioning in all of these different roles, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of their God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, so their families, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse. We'll get back to that in a few minutes, and an oath to walk in God's law. There's gospel obedience. To do and to observe all the commandments of the Lord, His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now take a look at this. What do we see? We see their allegiance to God. We see here an Old Testament version of seek ye first the kingdom of God above all things and His righteousness. The people take an oath to walk in God's law. They take an oath to observe and do. It almost sounds like James chapter 1, doesn't it? We will not just be hearers of God's word, but doers of God's word. Look at what they say. We take an oath to walk in God's law, to do and observe. And commentators rightly point out this is not legalistic. This is not a return to the covenant of works. This is not about works righteousness. Remember, and I'm going to constantly remind us, Nehemiah 10 follows Nehemiah 9. This is all about the effects of grace. In Nehemiah 9, when they fasted and prayed and confessed and repented, they received forgiveness. And the result of that forgiveness gripping their heart was a commitment to allegiance to God. This was not a works righteousness. And secondly, obedience is very practical. Now we have to be careful here. It concerns our relationships, and yes, they separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, and they're committed to not giving their sons and daughters to the peoples of the land in marriage, but as commentator Derek Thomas puts it, he says this ban on mixed marriage is not in itself a racial ban. The issue involved is not ethnicity, but religion. And he writes, Christians too are under restrictions on whom they may marry. The New Testament makes it clear that there is neither Jew nor Gentile in light of the gospel, which means that Christians may marry across racial and ethnic lines, but restrictions remain. Christians may not marry unbelievers. Paul writes, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness. They were concerned about being a contrast society. They were concerned about the uniqueness not mixing with the idols of the nations. I wonder how much time we take to question and identify the idols of the nation in which we live. Do we even ask the question, what a, there is much, much to be thankful for in America. But do we even ask the question, I wonder what the idols are of America. That I, as a member and a citizen, my ultimate citizenship is with the kingdom of God. I wonder what idols our nation has that I am to separate from out of my love and allegiance for Jesus Christ? Do we even bother to ask the question? Next area, Sabbath and the worship. Verse 31, 
It says, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. Again, Derek Thomas rightly says, the ceremonial aspects of the day have ceased along with the rest of the ceremonial law. And technically, we honor the first day, not the seventh day in the New Covenant era. At the very least, we should attempt to keep it holy, different from the rest of the week, by refraining from unnecessary labor and commerce and maintaining a weekly attendance at church along with our brothers and sisters. I love this next line. It remains a witness in a godless society that the lights are on and the parking lot is full at the local church on Sundays. Did you hear that? We miss the point if we get bogged down in all the details of what can I do on Sunday? What can, can I go to a restaurant? Can I not go to a restaurant? Do I have to dress up? Do I not have to dress up? What do I have to do if we are bogged down in the de details? We miss the heart of what the Sabbath is as a witness to Christ's lordship and resurrection. And as a witness to the watching world of the reality of Christ and the gospel. The lights being on. The lights being on. Our parking lot being full. Christians being committed to the Lord's Day and worshiping and gathering on the Lord's Day shows the world that Jesus is the world's true Lord. Not golf, sports, traveling teams, anything else. Jesus Christ is the world's true Lord. Again, we're talking the fruit of covenant renewal. And then lastly, concern for the house of God. Now, I know some of you might have been following along and going, uh-oh, here goes Jeff again. He's going to talk about giving. We're going to have all this talk. Here it goes again. He's going to beat me up about the need for generosity and the need for stewardship and giving. And yes, it's in the Bible. I can't avoid it. I do think you all want me to teach the Bible. But giving's not the overarching concern here. Did any of you pick up, see, I could, I could test you all and see, how well are you paying attention when I read a long narrative like this? How many times it was brought up, concern for the house of God? I counted. Y'all pay me to do this. Nine times in like ten short verses, it was brought up, concern for the house of God. All of these things are about the primacy of the church. If this is about allegiance, this is about our hearts. See, God is after, he's not after our money, he's after our hearts. He wants to reorder our loves that we love what he loves. And do you want to know what he loves? He loves his bride. He loves the church. That's what he's committed to. Listen to this text out of 1 Kings chapter 9. This is Solomon's, after Solomon's prayer of dedication, after he completed the first building project, the building of the temple, the house of God. 1 Kings chapter 9 says, And the Lord said to him, so this is the Lord's response 
to Solomon. Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house. Now remember, let's remember our redemptive history. The temple in the Old Testament is fulfilled by the church in the New Testament. Paul says the church is the temple of God. That's why a new temple will not be rebuilt in Jerusalem, because the temple is now made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people that is united to and in Jesus Christ all over the globe. Now listen to what he says. So this is prophecy that's fulfilled in Christ. I've consecrated, I've set apart this house, which you've made before me, this house that you've built, by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. God's eyes and God's heart is with the church, the house of God. God is committed. He has bound up his own happiness with the happiness of the church, with the welfare of the church. If we love God, we will love his church. Which is why there are many, many good causes we could give to, and I am supporting these causes outside the church. There are many great opportunities, great ministries, and they are, but they're outside the church. And I'm not saying you shouldn't give to them, but I'm saying the primacy of our giving reflects the primacy of our hearts. God's eyes and God's heart is with the church, not the parachurch. Where are our eyes and where are our hearts? Do we love what God loves? Now that's the essence of gospel obedience. How do we get there? How do we grow in this area? Gospel renewal leads to gospel obedience. Verse 29. I hope you took note of this when I read this. I said we'd come back to it, and we're going to come back to it now. Verse 29 says, And all these people, priests, Levites, townspeople, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, all these various people along with their leaders, they sign this covenant renewal, and what does this mean? They enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Now, that's amazing. That shows commitment, doesn't it? Wow! You're willing to enter into a curse if you don't follow God's law? You're willing to enter into this oath that we will observe and do? Do we have a clue what God's law commands? Again, quoting James, James chapter 2, doesn't it say something along the lines, if you keep the law at every point, I mean, you're dutiful. You do it all. Word, thought, deed, action, motive, I mean, you do it all. You keep it, and you blow it just one time. One mistake at age 14. Ah! You've broken the whole thing. So what happens if you enter into this curse and this oath to walk in God's law? What does God's law say? It says you're cursed if you don't keep it. 
which means what? In that context, they're all under a curse. The entire nation is under a curse. We are all under a curse. That is our condition. Unless we have somebody to come and actually do the law as it was commanded and take the curse upon himself. And there was somebody who did that. And this is why Jesus is the true Israel. Because every prophecy, every promise, both in its negative and its, pro and its positive, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true Israel. Because all of it came and was absorbed into him. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians that all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. He is the fulfillment of it all. Jesus received the curse of the covenant. His death was a covenant curse. Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What is the essence of covenant renewal? It is the gospel. Jesus observed and did every aspect of the law, every detail of the law, and credited it to us as righteousness. And then the curse of the law, he took upon himself as the cross, on the cross. And that's why God can say, as far as the east is from the west, I don't think I can reach far enough. As far as the east is from the west, so far have your sins been removed from you. That's why he can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, if we want to see renewal and restoration, we need to look to grace. And grace is not, we misunderstand grace all the time. We think grace is, oh, I'm just going to kind of be willy-nilly and let anybody do whatever they want. That has nothing to do with grace. Grace is about seeing God's eyes and God's heart being bound up with you enough that it would cost him the life of his son that he would go to the cross as your substitute on your behalf, credit you with his righteousness, that he loves you, and he sings over you with loud singing and dancing, that your heart would be gripped by that, that you would say like Isaiah did, here am I, send me. Ask me to do anything, and I'll do it. See, we know that's what grace will do, which is why we're allergic to grace. We know that if grace grips our heart, we owe God everything, and he can ask us to do anything. He can ask us to love our enemies. He can ask us to participate in LOPC 2.0. He can ask us to love our community. He can ask us to not neglect the house of God. Grace has to grip our hearts. God's eyes and God's heart are with us. Jesus entered the curse and fulfilled the oath on our behalf. That's what we're going to feed on. 
at the Lord's table in just a minute.